It's Tuesday, September 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The United Auto Workers Union went on strike at General Motors, sending almost 50,000 members to the picket lines. The union is pushing for GM to improve wages, narrow the pay gap between new and old workers, and reopen plants that have shut down. Among other things, GM wants workers to pay for a greater portion of their healthcare costs. B.B. Wall-Howard, auto and labor reporter for the Detroit Free Press, joins us for more. Next, oxycotton maker Purdue Pharma has filed for bankruptcy as part of their deal to resolve thousands of lawsuits, accusing it of causing an opioid epidemic. But legal battles will still continue because half of the states involved have not signed on to the deal. Sarah Randazzo, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what we know about how Purdue Pharma is trying to settle its part in the opioid crisis. Finally, actress Felicity Huffman was sentenced last week to serve 14 days in prison and pay a $30,000 fine for her role in the Operation Varsity Blues college admissions cheating scandal. Justin Paperni, founder of White Collar Advice, and federal prison consultant, joins us for what Huffman can expect in prison and also the big question. What does this mean for other parents waiting for their time in court? It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. During bankruptcy, we made sure that this corporation stayed afloat, not only by taking concessions contractually, but we also pay taxes. Our taxes actually help save this corporation. So we want GM to invest in America. We want them to stop taking our plants and putting them in Mexico. Joining us now is Phoebe Wall-Howard, an autos and labor reporter for the Detroit Free Press. Thanks for joining us, Phoebe. Thank you. We're going to be talking about this strike by the United Auto Workers Union against General Motors. Uh, Phoebe, I've been following some of your reporting. You've been out there for quite some time following this, speaking to a lot of people, and we'll get some of that reaction in a moment. But start us off with what this whole thing is about. About 50,000 members are currently striking across uh, factories all over the place, and we're waiting to see if General Motors and the union will be able to strike a deal. Tell us what's going on. Well, a couple of things happening here. Nearly 50,000 workers, as you said, and that's in 10 states. So this is not a Detroit or Ohio issue. This is a national issue. This, of course, is where the United Auto Workers are saying they brokered a deal with General Motors during the economic recession. They forfeited vacation. They forfeited wages and they forfeited other benefits, saying we're all in this together. When everybody's making money, bring us back to the table. So the GM workers actually broke a contract that protected them during the recession, took massive cuts at the time, and says now GM is a very healthy company. Its executives are paid very well. Do not cut our health care and protect our wages. What's interesting is the Center for Automotive Research notes that the UAW wage is actually down 16% since those cuts. So that's an industry-friendly organization at the University of Michigan that says the wages today are lower. So that's what you have here. At GM, they have this kind of two-tier system where older workers are, you know, making whatever money they're having and new employees are getting hired in at much lower wages. And some of them say that that causes this kind of strife between them because they're doing very similar work and they're getting paid vastly different salaries. Absolutely, with the temporary workers and the two-tier. And that is an issue where the workers say they really want parity. Interestingly, the workers on the line I interviewed last night said it makes them feel better that everybody has the same wage. So some of the strikers that I talked to were the higher wage 
strikers. And they felt it was fair, again, bringing everybody up. A number of people hadn't had pay raises in years. I know GM has wanted them to pay a greater portion of their health care costs. That seems to be a big sticking point. They pay very little, the employees, compared to average workers across the country. But that's where GM is trying to save some costs by having them pay a little bit more of their health care costs. The health care is a big issue, like for all companies. The issue that labor will say is that their jobs are exceptionally physical and more prone to injury, frankly. So their point is, yes, we have better health coverage. We are also in significantly more dangerous conditions in terms of repetitive motion and even dealing with robots. I interviewed some workers that handle all the robots and they do things that are unpredictable, injury-based with all factories, not General Motors specific. For now, workers that are striking will get paid $250 a week while they're out of work, although they do have to wait, I think, 15 days before this actually kicks in. $250 a week is not very much. That's going to be pretty tough for them to live on. For their part, on GM's side, they said that things won't really get affected to the consumers for about 70 days or so. That After that, then you'll start seeing certain models or colors or things that consumers want that they might not be available at that time. Two things that you touch on in terms of the $250 a week. One is that the local union halls have been collecting food and non-perishables. So people throughout the community have been collecting goods in support of the union workers, many non-union people. I saw them delivering cars full of materials, especially in Flint, people from driving all over the state of Michigan and delivering that stuff. As far as days and supply, GM is absolutely confident that it has prepared and produced, so they do have a stash. However, remember, we learned the Teamsters have announced that they are 100% supporting the UAW workers. That means that they will not be delivering vehicles. They will not deliver them from the factory and they will not deliver them to the dealer. So when the truck drivers say we will not cross this picket line, that is a very serious issue that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But that's 1,000 truck drivers who are saying we won't be returning your phone calls. There has been a scandal going on with the United Auto Workers leadership. They were using union funds for lavish trips and things like that. How has this impacted all the negotiations and the workers themselves? How do they feel about all of this? So the issue of fraud and scandal and FBI convictions over the last two years, it's real with the national United Auto Workers. However, the workers will say separate from that, many say they're happy to be striking and they feel like it's overdue. So for them, the issue is some of the folks at the table doing the negotiation are under federal scrutiny right now for potential wrongdoing. These are leadership teams, some of which have pleaded guilty and have been given prison time. So that is a valid issue, a valid concern, and frankly, the focus of tremendous anger and resentment. Again, as you said, lavish lifestyle and specifically involving Fiat Chrysler and the UAW and outside training funds. I like to remind people this wasn't union dues. It's uh, training money that came from the companies, but it's demoralizing for the workers to see that. Phoebe Wall-Howard, one of the auto and labor reporters for the Detroit Free Press. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. The people who designed, marketed, lied, and flooded our streets with this dangerous drug, the Sackler family, they have everything. And they want to keep it that way. Joining us now is Sarah Randazzo. 
reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Sure thing. Purdue Pharma has filed for bankruptcy protection. This is part of a partial deal aimed at resolving thousands of lawsuits that have been filed by states and municipalities accusing the company of fueling the opioid crisis. What do we know about this bankruptcy protection and what's in store for the future? Because it doesn't really seem like this ends everything. So they entered bankruptcy with a settlement that they say is their best offer that includes between 3 and $4.5 billion from the company's owners, the Sacklers, and it essentially then turns the company into a trust that will be run to continue paying out all of the cities and local governments that are suing it. But about half the states are saying that isn't good enough and they want more cash guaranteed and some other concessions from the company and their owners. And so they're saying they're going to fight this effort to put this deal through bankruptcy. Tell us about the money that the Sacklers have made off of Purdue Pharma and selling OxyContin. I know that they've sold about $32 billion worth of OxyContin over the course of its life since the 90s. But I think there was also some filings that showed that the Sackler family was sending themselves about a billion dollars through other offshore accounts and everything. What do we know about that? So it's a bit hard to tell how much money the family has and where it's gone. Some court filings have shown that between 2008 and 2016, the company received $4 billion in their kind of usual profit shares. The billion that you referenced came out on a Friday. The New York Attorney General has been trying to subpoena a whole bunch of banks, maybe 30 or more, that they say did business with the Sacklers to see where their money has gone. And so they flagged this $1 billion in money from the Sacklers that's gone through various offshore accounts, but it's unclear where that money comes from, what part of their wealth it's from when they took it out of the company. So it's all a little fuzzy, as any private company's wealth is in terms of how much they have and and where they've put it. The thought behind this is that they're sending themselves money so that they can maybe lowball how much they have to contribute to this just because, you know, they're taking that money off the books, right? Is that that's kind of the thought behind that? That's the allegation, yeah, from state attorneys general that say they don't believe the Sacklers when they say there's not more money to be put into this settlement. And so that's why they want to continue litigating so that they can get a full accounting through bank records and other things to see truly how much money went to the Sacklers and then where they put it and whether any of those transfers were improper or not. How does this impact the next big trial that was supposed to happen. We know the last one that happened, uh, Purdue Pharma had already settled out of it. And that's why Johnson and Johnson kind of maintained the brunt of that. But there was another one that was expected to start, I think, next month. How does this impact that? Are they off the hook now since they're filing for bankruptcy and trying to cut this deal? So almost certainly they won't appear in that trial. And it's been known for a while that Purdue was very unlikely to appear in that big trial because everyone knew they were headed towards some kind of bankruptcy plan here. And so there's still several companies that will be part of that trial, drug makers and distributors. It's scheduled to start October 21st in Ohio. And so that'll still be the big show, if you will. You know, there could be more settlements ahead of that that take other companies out of it, but it seems there'll be more companies in it than in Oklahoma, where, as you said, Johnson Johnson ended up being the lone company on trial in that one. For a long time now, you know, this whole thing about declaring bankruptcy has been the practice of big organizations that are facing huge lawsuits. I think earlier this year, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, sought bankruptcy protection because they were facing billions of dollars and potential damages from lawsuits over the wildfires that happened in California. So a lot of big companies end up going this way when it looks like they're going to just be shelling out a ton of money. That's right. And it's both because of the money it takes and also because of the logistics. Bankruptcy can provide one court where everything gets funneled through versus having, in Purdue's case, 2,600 lawsuits in 
federal courts and state courts literally all across the country that they were fighting a motion here and a hearing there. And it was exerting a ton of time, attorney time and hours and money. And so bankruptcy can be used in cases like this as a tool to get everything in one place and try to focus it a little more. I know that while they're looking for a little bit more money and Purdue is trying to get other states, municipalities to sign on to this deal, Purdue still could eventually live on just in a way that all the profits they end up making goes back to paying off whatever these settlements are and providing you know, health support services for people that have been affected by the opioid crisis. So the plan as it stands now is that the company won't disappear overnight. You know, they'll function for at least, I think, seven to 10 more years at, at a minimum and be turned into a public trust, which is a little bit of a unique structure for a drug maker. I don't know that it's really been done before, but essentially trustees would take over the company and as you say, continue to sell products and develop drugs that could help opioid addiction. But then essentially any money they make would all be turned over as part of the settlement. Sarah Randazzo, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure thing. All of them knowingly conspired with Singer and others to help their children either cheat on the SAT or ACT and or buy their children's admission to elite schools through fraud. This case is about the widening corruption of elite college admissions. Joining us now is Justin Paperni, founder of White Collar Advice and federal prison consultant. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Thanks for the invitation. When we're talking about Felicity Huffman, we just found out last week that she was sentenced to 14 days for her role in Operation Varsity Blues. This was the college admissions cheating scandal. She also has to pay about $30,000 in fines and then I think some community service also. One of the big questions surrounding all of this is now that she got sentenced to some time, what about a lot of the other parents that are also involved in this? Justin, tell us a little bit about what you think the implications of Felicity Huffman's sentencing is going to be on Lori Lachlan and other parents as well. Well, because Felicity was sentenced to prison, every other parent is going to get sentenced to, to prison. Felicity did it well by accepting responsibility. It was $15,000. What she did incredibly well was show that she had changed her behavior by not engaging with Singer again for her second child. But to your question, if Felicity was sentenced to prison, the other parents can expect to be sentenced to prison as well. And she did seem very remorseful, genuinely remorseful in statements that she put out there. And, you know, that's not what you've been hearing out of Lori Lachlan's camp. They denied to take any deal. The money amounts are different, which I'm sure factors into the amount of prison time. So I'm sure her and her camp are probably a lot more concerned after seeing what happened with Felicity Huffman. It could go either way. They could be emboldened because last week the probation department said there were no discernible victims and no financial loss. So that could embolden the Lachlan camp to go to trial knowing that if they lose, how long could the sentence really be because probation has identified no victims and no financial loss. So it could embolden them. It could also concern them in the way that Felicity accepted responsibility. She was still sentenced to prison. The longer this plays out, the less clarity she'll have in her life. She's already in prison, though she's just not getting credit for it. She's in the land of the unknown, scared to death. And because she's delaying potentially the inevitable, it will lead to a longer prison sentence, of course, because the government is now investing more of our tax dollars to prosecute her. So tell us a little bit about what you do. You founded White Collar Advice, and you advise people facing time in federal prisons for nonviolent and financial crimes and kind of 
what to expect when they go in. This is something that is close to you. You actually went through this in a different time in your life. We know that Felicity Huffman's attorney requested that she be allowed to serve her 14-day prison sentence at a correctional institution in Dublin, California. This is a low-security correctional institution. What is she expecting, and how do you advise your clients on what to expect when they're going to FaceTime? Well, I got into this career, back to your earlier point, in an interesting way. I was a baseball player at USC, stockbroker for a long time, made bad choices, got indicted, and didn't know how to prepare, didn't know how to work with a lawyer. And then when I got to prison in 2008, I realized I was not alone and not knowing what the hell to do. So I sensed an opportunity to help. I began writing, then my first book, Lessons from Prison. And since 2009, I've been guiding all types of defendants. We help any defendant willing to invest the time and go down this foreign world to them, what I think Felicity has done well, what any defendant needs to do well, is convey that regardless of the length of the sentence, a felony conviction is a lifelong stigma. Even if she got probation, she's got a long road ahead of her. So what we do at White Collar Advice is help defendants go down this foreign world of you know, maintaining their dignity, of holding a lawyer accountable, ensuring they get the shortest sentence in the most favorable prison. And that leads to Felicity. Will she get the desired prison of her choosing? The answer is maybe. On a 14-day sentence, there's no certainty the Bureau of Prisons will designate her to Dublin Minimum Security Camp in Northern California. There is a chance, because of the brevity of her sentence, that they sent her to the Metropolitan Detention Center in downtown. Regardless of where she goes, she's got to do a lot of listening and thinking rather than talking, understanding that she is moving into an environment where women will have lived for months, years, and decades and that she shouldn't seek to exploit or manipulate this environment, but rather seek to understand it. Is there any indication that she could get even more of a reduced sentence once she gets in there, or do you think that she's going to serve that those full two weeks? You're not eligible for good time in a federal prison system unless you get sentenced to 12 months or more. So on a 14-day sentence, no good time. She is gotcha. technically eligible for halfway house, which means she could surrender and they could process her out to the halfway house. I don't expect that to happen. I do not expect her to have a job. I don't think they're going to move her to segregation. I think she will be in the minimum security compound for 10 or 11 days. And she'll move on with her life. But I don't expect it to be any harder than it needs to be. But that's going to come down to her preparations. As I've said in other media outlets, I would have encouraged her after she was sentenced on Friday to ask the court to remand her in handcuffs and go directly to the Boston Detention Center and just get the 14 days over with. Think about it. She'd be three days into it right now. Instead, there'll be this whole kind of media circus and when will she surrender? Where is she going to go? The hundreds of cameras in and around her. She could be 30% of the way done, but that's her choice. I just hope that she's able to get in, be productive, help people, and not complain. And that's a quick tip that I'll offer anyone going to prison. Never complain about the length of your sentence, especially when your bunkie could be serving 10 years for a ridiculous, nonviolent drug crime. Justin Paperni, founder of White Collar Advice and federal prison consultant. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.